Romans chapter 6. For the last several weeks, let me remind you, this Wednesday night is milling a message. And the theme for this Wednesday, that's right, right? It's the next Wednesday night. Praise the Lord. Don't come this Wednesday night expecting a meal. You're going to hear from my wife and I as we teach on holiness. Amen. The next Wednesday night. No, you're not even going to get to hear from my wife and I. Because we're going to live stream General Conference. I, I, I talked, listen, this is the way, I'm going to be honest with you. This is a Purpose Institute weekend. For the last three, four days, I have been completely immersed in study and preparation and teaching Purpose, Purpose Institute, and my brain is fried. So we talked about these things this morning, just a few hours ago. And I can't remember the conversation at all to save my life now. This is just the way it is. Uh, This is the life I live. Amen. (laughs) Sometimes I wake up in a brand new world. Amen. But, But so Wednesday night, General Conference begins this week. Wednesday night, we will be live streaming the General Conference service for Wednesday night. If you'll remember, we did that last year. It was a real blessing. We'll be doing that again this year in Wednesday night service. Amen. The next Wednesday night is our milling a message. It is chilly. This is October. Will be October by then, and it is a chilly milling a message. That means that you know if you're bringing a dish, bring some kind of chili. We usually have several different kinds. I often often make my white chili just that because it's a different kind of chili, and so we'll do that. We'll have a great time. You'll hear more about that from me uh, next Sunday when my when my head's right. Amen. Amen. Now let's get into the Word of God, though, because there I'm confident and comfortable, and I know, I know, amen, I don't have to wake up in a new world there. That Word is forever settled. It never changes. Amen. So Romans chapter 6. For the last two weeks, we have looked at the first four verses of Romans, and, and we're, in, we're in a place, uh, Romans chapter 6, and we're in a place where the letter is transitioning Uh, from the subject of justification to the subject of sanctification. And Paul has has set out to answer at the beginning of chapter 6 a very important question. The question is, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And we have spent now two weeks on those first four verses, and I I really wanted to catch a little traction and get through about verse 10 today, but we're only going to get about two verses done this morning too. It's just the pace at which it's moving and the things that are there that need to be talked about. So in response to the question, Paul points out that we're dead to sin. And if, if we're dead to sin, then how can we continue to live any longer in it? Something Wonderful happened in our lives whenever we encountered the cross at Calvary, when we came to Jesus Christ and and we, we came to our Savior and our Redeemer, when we surrendered our lives to Him, we surrendered our whole self to Him. We, we died to sin and we were buried with Him in baptism and He came to live inside of us. And Paul said, you ought to know then what that means. Sir, ma'am, that means you're not who you used to be. 
That means your life is not what it used to be. Everything changed on the day that you came to Jesus. Amen. You've been given a brand new life. You've been given a brand new being inside of you. There is spiritual life. Uh, Amen. That wasn't there before. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. You were dead in the things of this world. But he has brought you to life in his spirit. And Paul said you ought to live like it. You ought to act like it. It ought to show up in the way that you conduct your life. Paul's entire point here is that we should live a changed life. We must live a life that reflects what happened to us when faith compelled us to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? So from verses 3 through verse 14... And I said this last week, Paul introduces three crucial steps to living that kind of life. First of all, you got to know, and that's what we were talking about that when we left off last week. That's what we'll pick up this week. You, you have to know, the believer has to know what happened to you in salvation. You need to know what transpired when you repented of your sins and you were baptized in his name and he filled you with his spirit. The second step is now that you know you've got to reckon it or you've got to count it to be true in your life. You've got to count what you now know as real. Amen. You've got to invest yourself in it. And the final step then is that once you know it and you reckon it, then you must yield your life to God on the basis of what you now know and count to be true in your life. Now, Paul spends most of his time on that first step the knowing, uh, and beginning with the question in verse 3, know ye not, don't you know what happened to you when you were baptized? Don't you know what happened to you when he filled you with spirit? Don't you know what happened to you when you came to Jesus Christ? And we started that segment last week, verses 3 and 4. We're going to keep on at that same snail's pace, and we're going to do verses 5 and 6 today. Uh, If you have your Bible, turn with me, Romans chapter 6 beginning with verse 5. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Amen. So I'm going to go back, beginning with verse 5, and I'm going to read it again. It says, for if we've been planted together, planted together, planted together, in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. So verse 4 from last week ended with the statement that we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. Now verse 5 continues that line of thought. If we identify with Christ's death, then we will certainly identify with his resurrection. If we if we die with him, then we will live a transformed life with him. Amen? We understand that In order to be saved, we must be crucified with Christ. 
Paul wants us to make sure that we further understand that if we died with Christ, if we are crucified with Christ, then we must be raised with him to walk in the newness of life. One follows the other. In Christ, death cannot be the end of the story. If you're going to be crucified with Christ, if you're going to die in Christ, then death can't be the end of the story because what is buried in his likeness must rise again to walk in the newness of life. What is buried in his likeness, what, what takes on his death must then also take on a new life. We cannot die in Christ and remain dead. That's not the gospel. You don't repent of your sins and just get baptized and you're done. Jesus Christ didn't die for my sins and be buried and he was done. If Paul said if he died and he was buried but he was not raised again on the third day, then my hope is in vain. The gospel is that he died he was buried and he was raised again on the third day. So if I'm going to identify with that and I'm going to die in repentance and I'm going to be buried with him in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of my sins, then I should expect that I'm going to live again the newness of life. The resurrecting spirit of God is going to come to live in my life. Christ didn't remain dead. I'm not going to remain dead either. I must rise to walk in the newness of life. To explain that idea, Paul introduces the image of a seed that is planted in the ground. How many plant a garden? We plant a garden every year. We plant very few seeds. I, I cheat. I buy those plants that are already, or I look for the ones that have already got blooms so I can get an early harvest. But every now and then we plant seeds. And when you, when you plant a seed, if you bury a seed in the ground, when you bury that seed in the ground, you expect life to spring from it. You have the expectation that what is buried in death is going to spring forth in new life. So Paul says, if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. We, we were buried with him in baptism. We like, like the seed, we were planted. We were put into the water. We were buried with him just like he was buried in the earth. But unlike the seed, we were planted in unity with another. Amen. We were buried with him. We were baptized into his likeness. We were baptized into his death. As a matter of fact, the scripture says we were baptized into Christ. There's a definite spiritual element that cannot be faithfully represented in the natural word picture of a seed that is planted and springs forth in new life. The, the King James uses the, the phrase planted together. That, the Greek behind that means united or, or grown together. It is commonly used for the joining together of two things that proceed to grow together in unity after they've been joined. 
It is used to describe the fusing together of a broken bone. When you put a broken bone back together, amen, it is fused together. It is joined together. It is united together, and then it grows together. Uh, another place where it's used is in the description of a branch that is grafted into a tree, a, a, a new branch and an old tree, and then and the cut is made, and the branch is grafted in, and they become, they're united together, and they become, they share a, a common life source, and they grow together. The analogy in play here is not just that we were buried like Christ, but that we were buried into Christ. There was a joining together. There was a spiritual union that took place. We were planted together in the likeness of his death. And if we were planted together in the likeness of his death, then we shall also be united in the likeness of his resurrection. That's the point. We weren't just planted. We weren't just buried. We were buried with him. There was a union that took place. We, we identified with Christ. We were baptized into Christ. And if we are truly in Christ Jesus, then we can't stay in the grave. We've got to be born again. There has to be a newness of life come. The, the infilling of the Holy Ghost naturally follows because we've been buried with him. The end goal of death in Jesus Christ is the resurrection. We talked about that last week. But there, there's a definite spiritual side to this discussion. When we die with Christ in repentance, we're buried with him in baptism. And Paul says that which was buried was buried with the expectation that new life would bring spring forth. The same way when I plant a seed in the dirt, I believe that when I put that seed in the ground that it's going to bring forth new life. Whenever I was united with him in his death and I was buried with him in the waters of a baptism, then I am to be united with him in his new life when his spirit comes to live inside of me. When God fills us with the Holy Ghost, there's a fusing together that takes place there's a unifying experience that takes place where it is no longer just me Paul said I am crucified with Christ and yet I live not I but Christ lives within me there's a there's a union that takes place there's a there's a joining together there's a growing together that takes place whenever I am baptized in Christ and I rise to walk in the newness of life that comes from him Christ lives inside of me I was joined with him in his death at, a, at an altar of repentance. I was joined with him in his burial. Amen. I was buried with him in baptism. Amen. And now I rise to walk in the newness of life. And his spirit comes to live inside of me. The main point here is that resurrection is the expected outcome of burial. When you put the seed in the ground, you expect life to come forth. If I have repented of my sins, if I have been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, the expected outcome is that I will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. 
it naturally follows that new life is going to spring forth from that which has been buried in Christ. That's why Peter told the crowd on the day of Pentecost. They said, men and brethren, what shall we do? He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and ye shall. Not, not this is a possible third step. Not this might happen afterwards. He said, if you repent and you're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, if you're buried with Christ, then you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You're going to speak in other tongues as the Spirit of God gives you the utterance. That's what follows being buried with Christ. If you're buried with Him, then you're going to be resurrected with Him. That is the expectation. You will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Amen. If you repent, if you're buried with him, you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You will arise to walk in the newness of life. The seed that is planted is planted with the expectation that new life will spring forth. That new life is going to come. The gift of the Holy Ghost then follows baptism just as naturally as new life follows the planting of a seed. When I put a seed in the ground, it's going to bring forth life. When I repent of my sins and the preacher puts me under the water in the name of Jesus Christ and I'm buried with him, it naturally follows then. I'm going to receive his spirit into my life. I'm going to rise in the resurrection of the spirit of God and walk in the newness of life. Amen. Verse 6 says, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So in order to make sure that we understand what, what, what I just talked about, the, what happens when I'm buried, Paul goes back now to what we should know. Remember, this segment that we're in is about knowing. And so Paul said, you need to know this. You need to know that our old man was crucified with him. That the body of sin might be destroyed so that we would be set free. That happened so that we didn't have to serve sin any longer. That happened so that we didn't have to be in bondage to sin anymore. This is one of those things that we have to know. This is one of those things that we need to understand. We must know that our old man was crucified with Christ so that the body of sin might be destroyed. Going back to the analogy of the seed. When a seed is planted in the earth, body of it is destroyed so that the germ that central life giving core might live see when you look at a seed it's a dead dry husk but in the very center of that seed that seed which for all intents and purposes appears to be dead there's what they call the germ it is the the, the source of of the life that resides there. And what happens when you 
bury a seed in the ground is that the husk that surrounds that germ, it, it is destroyed. It, it begins to decompose. It begins to break down in the soil. And when that husk dies and begins to break down and, and decompose, the process of death provides the nutrient-rich environment that causes the germ to spring to life. It's in that nutrient-rich surrounding as the husk dies and breaks down. That's where that new life springs forth from, from that environment that is created by the burying of that seed. That's what Paul is talking about. The body of sin must die. In repentance, it must be buried in baptism so that that new life might spring forth in resurrection. By the destruction of that body of sin, our, our old man, that wicked, corrupt, fleshly man is crucified with Christ. It dies and in its dying creates the environment where new life can come in. You don't get to the Holy Ghost. You don't get to the infilling of the Spirit of God until the old man dies. You can't get new life out of that seed uh, until that husk breaks down and begins to decompose and begins to die. There has to be a death before there can be a life. You've got to die to sin. You've got to be buried with him in baptism. Now, I understand that sometimes God fills somebody with a baptism of the Holy Ghost that has died and has not yet been buried, and that, that once that happens, that you take them to the water scripturally, and you baptize them in the name of Jesus Christ to complete that process. But there has to be that breaking down. There has to be that death. Sometimes you can leave a seed out, and it'll sprout on the top of the ground as the, as the, as the husk begins to break down. Sometimes it, it doesn't even get buried before life begins to spring forth. But life never springs forth until that dead thing dies and breaks down and begins to lose its grasp and creates that nutrient-rich environment from which life comes from. Whenever you come to an altar of repentance, you come to a place of dying. And when you come there to die, something takes place spiritually that creates the environment where life can be born inside of you may happen before you're buried. It may happen before you're baptized. But life springs forth from death. It springs forth from the breaking down of the old man when that, when that man of flesh is crucified with Christ. When I truly deny myself and the lust of the flesh and all the things that have a bondage on me and all the things that have a hold on me, when I turn my back on them and I turn my heart towards Jesus, amen, something begins to take place inside of me. There becomes a dying. Uh, there becomes death, uh, amen. And out of that death, there comes life. That death is to be as complete as the death of Jesus on the cross. It is to be as complete as what happened to Christ in the crucifixion. Because the life that springs from it is to be as real as the resurrection and life that he experienced it. Amen. That life that comes after that death is to be as, as vibrant and as real 
as the life that raised Christ from the dead. An old Methodist scholar by the name of Adam Clark said it this way. He said, Jesus Christ took on him a body, a body in the likeness of sinful flesh, and gave up that body to death, through which death alone an atonement was made for sin. And the way was laid open for the life-giving spirit to have the fullest access to and the most powerful operation in the human heart. Jesus, in his death on the cross, made a way for me to be filled with his spirit. And the way that I'm filled with his spirit, amen, he died so that I might live. He died so that I might have life. And if I'm going to experience that life, then I've got to die spiritually. Amen. If I die spiritually, then that life can be born inside of me. Now, in the context of this verse, the body of sin is the old man. It is the old sin-dominated personality, the old sinful lifestyle which lived under the dominion of sin. If you remember We've been talking about the dominion of sin ever since we started chapter 6. It's, we, we lived under the dominion of sin, and something happened that took us out of the dominion of sin. That something was the salvation experience that we had. I want to be very clear, though, about this. When we're talking about the body of sin, we are not talking about the sin nature. The salvation experience moves us out from under sin's dominion, but it does not take away from us the compulsion to sin. It does not take away from us the sin nature. Now, we once walked in the flesh, and we were once in bondage to sin. We once lived under sin's dominion. We were under sin's control. Sin controlled us, and now sin no longer controls us. That's what happened. We're moved out from under sin's dominion. When we died to sin, we were loosed from the dominion of sin. But it has been evident from the very first verse of this chapter that though it is a tragic thing, though it should never happen, it is possible for someone who has been freed from sin's dominion to go back and live again under the dominion of sin. It is possible for someone who has been set free from sin to continue to live in sin. We wouldn't ask the question at the beginning of the chapter if there wasn't the possibility that some are living this way, some are teaching this, some are acting this way. That's why Paul admonishes us in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. He says, I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not the things that you wish. The flesh, Paul said, lusts against the spirit. Ultimately, I want you to understand, we are still flesh. Ultimately, we're still human beings. We've been buried with him. We've been filled with his spirit, but we're flesh and blood, men and women. Amen. And we have the capacity to sin. 
We have the capacity to transgress the law of God. We still have a sin nature. We still have a sinful desire in our flesh. Now make no mistake about it. We're not under the control of sin anymore. We shouldn't continue to live in sin. We're not supposed to go out and sin that grace may abound. We've been set free from sin's dominion. But there's still a sin nature in the flesh that you have to contend with. You have to battle that. What has changed is that we used to be the slaves of sin. And now we have power over sin. We used to be under sin's dominion. And now we have authority over sin in our lives. Amen. We used to have no choice in the matter. We were that's that's what the, the imagery that Paul uses and will use later in, in this book. We we were slaves. We were bound. We didn't have any choice in the matter. We were sinners. We were born that way. Amen. And sin had control of us, but no more. That control has been broken. That control has been shattered. We, we now have been given authority in Jesus Christ over sin. We can live right. We can live holy. We can live godly. We can live lives that reflect the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God. We don't have to live in sin. Amen. We recognize sin separates us from God. You can't live in sin and maintain a relationship with God. We learned that way back in the Garden of Eden. It doesn't take but one transgress for, for Adam and Eve to be kicked out of the garden. You can't maintain fellowship with God and live in sin. But if you're going to live a life of an overcomer, listen. You have to choose to exercise the authority that God has given you. He will not force you to live right. Just because he filled you with the Holy Ghost, just because he's given you victory over sin, does not mean that he is going to force you to live right. You must walk in the newness of life. You must exercise the freedom that he has given you. You must determine to live a life of righteousness. When we're born again, there's a radical inward change that takes place inside of us. The old man is mortified. The old man dies in repentance, and he is buried in baptism. And that experience provides the nutrient-rich spiritual environment from which new life springs forth. And that resurrection process, the springing forth of new life, is a work of the Spirit of God. You didn't do that in your flesh. You didn't fill yourself with the Holy Ghost. You didn't cause yourself to be born again. That was a spiritual transaction that took place. And if you're going to continue to live a life of victory, then you have to understand it must be done in the spirit. You can't do that in the flesh. You can't continue to live after the flesh and be a spiritual overcomer. 
When we received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, we were literally filled with His Spirit. New life was born within us that sprung from the death of the old man in our burial with Jesus Christ. And that, that new life fused us together with Him in a spiritual sense. It's no longer our life alone. We now, Christ now lives within us. We, we now have that, that companionship with Him. His Spirit lives inside of us. That, that, that new life that we have, that's not a fleshly thing. That's not a carnal thing. That's a spiritual thing. It was caused by the Spirit of God that came to live inside of us. The reason I'm stressing that is this. The call to live a sanctified, holy, separated life is the call to live after the Spirit and not after the flesh. It can only be accomplished in the Spirit. It can only be accomplished by living after the Spirit of God that lives. That's why Paul said in Galatians 5 and 16, walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit that you should not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I bring up the sin nature this morning because the sin nature is still a very serious reality in your life. Your flesh is still real. And it still has the capacity and even the desire to sin. And the key to overcoming the sin nature is to walk in the Spirit of God. Listen. This is a spiritual thing. You've got to do this in the spirit. It cannot be accomplished by your willpower alone. So many people struggle to live for God because they don't understand that. I'm going to quit sinning. And I'm going to do it by my willpower. Let me tell you something. Your willpower has never ruled your flesh. The only thing that ever overcame your flesh was the Spirit of God. And if you neglect spiritual things in your life, then you neglect the very source from which that new life comes. Amen? What are you saying, Pastor? Well, let me get very blunt. If you don't pray, if you don't fast, if you don't read and study your Bible, if you don't make church attendance a priority in your life, if you don't put the emphasis in your life on spiritual things, then mark my words, Paul said, walk in the Spirit that you may not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you don't make the Spirit and spiritual things a priority in your life, you're going to fulfill the lust of the flesh. You will sin. It's as simple as that. You'll find yourself back under the control of your flesh. And your flesh will take you places you don't want to go. And your flesh will cause you to do things you never thought you would do. 
and your flesh will cost you more than you ever imagined that it could cost you. Brother McCall, what's the key to living an overcoming life? I can tell you what the key is. The key is that spirit that lives inside of you, that Holy Ghost that you've been filled with. You've got to feed the spirit. You've got to walk after the spirit. You've got to make it a priority in your life. I'm going to pray. I'm going to talk to him. I'm going to read the word of God. I'm going to make church attendance a priority in my life, not because I need to be checked off on an attendance roll, but because I get something here that I can't get anywhere else. There's something that happens in the communion of the body of Christ that I don't get shut up in my bedroom somewhere studying by myself. There's something that happens when an anointed man of God preaches the word of God into my life that opens understanding that I didn't get by myself. Walk in the Spirit. Pursue the things of the Spirit. That's the foundation of the life of an overcomer. The life of a believer. This new life was born in the Spirit. You can't accomplish in the flesh what only the Spirit can accomplish. Now that doesn't mean that you have to live in isolation. That doesn't mean that you need to go to a monastery somewhere and spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week in church. But what it does mean is that you have to allow the Spirit of God that lives within you to influence every decision you make, to influence every step you take, to have an impact on every choice in your life. It means that you allow the Spirit of God to lead you and guide you, that you hear from God. How do I hear from God, Pastor? you got to pray. You've got to read the word of God. He speaks to you. Listen, uh, you run around saying, I need a word from God. I need a word from God. I need a, you've got a whole lot of word from God right here. Read it. Get into it. It'll change your life. This is where the spirit springs from. This is where life springs from. It springs from the word of God. It springs from having a, a real relationship with God. You got to get into the Word. You got to get into church. You got to get into the uh, a prayer life. You got to get fasting is important. I know you don't hear enough about it. Probably, probably as pastor, I don't talk enough about the need to deny your flesh. Pa- fasting is important because it helps you keep your flesh under submission. Whenever you push away your plate and say, "I'm not going to eat today." Amen. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast, and fasting is about more than just not eating. I'm going to seek God, and I'm going to pray. It's not just you don't get fasting separated from prayer. It's a, it's a union that takes place there. I'm going to fast, and I'm going to seek the face of God. What does that do? That breaks the hold of your flesh. That breaks the hold of that, that carnal man. That weakens him, and when he's weakened, the spirit gets stronger. My Bible said no man can serve two masters. Two dueling authorities there. Your flesh seeks to control you, but your spirit, the the Holy Ghost has been given the authority. You choose which one grows, thrives, and lives, and which one doesn't. And you choose it by the way you walk, by the way you live, day to day. If you're going to walk in the spirit, then you must walk after the spirit. If you're to walk in the Spirit, then you need to have a prayer life. If you're to walk in the Spirit, then you need to read the Word of God. 
not just so you can check off a list. You need to let the word speak into your life. You, you understand there are differences. Sometimes we get on a Bible reading program and we got to read. I, I, I like the Bible in the 90 days. It's a very cool thing. I've done it. But, but it's, it's, a, it's a challenge to read the Bible in 90 days. You got to read a certain amount of pages. And sometimes the focus gets on reading the pages instead of really absorbing what you're reading. I'm not real good at that kind of thing because I, I, wanna, I, I can't read my Bible without a highlighter, without an ink pen, a notepad. And, and it, they say it takes three and a half minutes to read a chapter out of the New Testament. Buddy, I can turn that into three and a half hours in a heartbeat. Amen. But there's a difference between reading the New Testament, a chapter in three and a half minutes. And reading it in three and a half hours. Now, I'm not saying you got to read three and a half hours, but I am saying you need to let the Word of God speak in your life. You need to let it influence you. Amen. The flesh, the flesh will always be characterized by lust, temptations, weaknesses, the, the lust of the, the eyes. The lust of the heart, the pride of life, these things that will always be there. The Spirit of God will always overcome it if we walk in the Spirit, if we allow the Holy Ghost to have its way in our life. you got to understand, just because you go to church on Sunday doesn't mean you're immune to the influence of your flesh. Just because you're you, you, you sing on the platform or you're a part of some ministry in this church does not mean that you're immune to the influence of your flesh. You've got to submit yourself to the Spirit of God. If you're not going to be in bondage to your flesh anymore, then you've got to live like it. Amen? Galatians 2 and 20, and I've already quoted it. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm going to finish up pretty quickly. I, I want to cover the very last phrase of, of verse 6. It ends with a very powerful phrase that henceforth we should not serve sin. This is the reason why we've been crucified with Christ. This is the reason why we have been buried in his name and filled with his spirit. That from henceforth, from now on, we should not serve sin. Sin may continue to attack us. Temptation may still plague us, but we no longer serve sin. Satan will desire to ensnare us. He will desire to enslave us again. But we do not have to fall into his trap. We've been filled with the Spirit of God. We have a new life. And that new life is not subject to the dominion of sin. I love to study World War II history and, and the island warfare of the Pacific. The, very mo the, the Pacific Islands were all 
completely occupied by the Japanese by the time our offensive finally got a little head of steam and started trying to make some progress. If you're going to capture an island that is occupied by the enemy, you need one very important thing. You have to establish a beachhead. Matter of fact, if you're going to occupy a mainland that is occupied by the enemy, you need the same thing. You need a beachhead. That's what happened at D-Day in Normandy on D-Day. Five beaches were stormed. The whole reason for the tragic circumstances that took place that day on Utah Beach was the, the need to establish a beachhead. If you can get a beachhead, if you can put a foothold on the land, if you can, if you can establish a place that, that you, you may be completely surrounded by the enemy, but, but you have a secure place then from which to launch attacks. You have a secure place then from which to, to disrupt the enemy's supply and, and, and their, their, their efforts to organize their defense. You have a secure place from which to fight. Listen to me. As long as you're walking around in flesh and blood, the sin nature will have a beachhead in your life. As long as you are a human being walking around in carnal flesh, the sin nature will have a place from which to attack you, from which to tempt you. The, the scripture, and I, 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 I'm messed up the quote a few minutes ago but the scripture says there there are three ways that the flesh tempts you the lust of the eyes the lust of the flesh and the pride of life they will always be with you they will you will always struggle against the lust of the eyes the things i want listen my wants are big and if I pursued all of my wants, it would surely take me out of the will of God. The, the lust of the flesh. My flesh has a lot of wants. Not just things I see, but things I can dream up that I want. That, that, that desire, and that if I pursue that drive sooner or later, it's going to take me. I've got to get that under submission and pride. My goodness. I'm so humble. I'm so proud that I'm so humble I don't have to struggle with pride. We all, we all struggle with pride. The pride of life. We, we want better things. We want to accomplish better things. We want to better ourselves. If we're not careful, the, the pursuit of the flesh will cost us our spiritual walk with God. And I, I'm not teaching on all of that. I, I guess I've kind of wandered into that this morning. But my point is to say that your flesh is always going to be there. It's always going to be an obstacle. It's always going to be launching an attack against you. You're always going to struggle with those temptations. But here's the key. You're no longer under the control of the flesh. You're no longer under the control of those lusts. You now have a choice. You, you, you've been baptized. You've been, you died with him in repentance. You were baptized into Christ, and now you've risen in the resurrection and life, and you've been planted together. You've been joined together with him, and now Christ lives inside of you. You don't have to walk that way anymore. But you have to choose to walk after the Spirit. 
but not after the flesh. It's in your hands. He has done all that he can do. He has died on the cross. He has filled you with his spirit. And now you have to choose what you'll do with it. Sure, you will be tempted. Sure, you will be tested. Sure, there's going to be a war against your spirit. The flesh is going to rise up. But you've been made an overcomer. You have to choose to live like that. So the question is, then, what if I make a mistake? What if I fall down? What if sin becomes what John MacArthur called the heartbreaking exception in my life? I blew it. You were trying to live right. You had the best of intentions, but somehow you failed. Are you forever condemned to return to a life of bondage to sin? Does it forever erase the wonderful overcoming power of that new life that is inside of you? No, my friend, it doesn't. There is mercy. There is grace. There is the love of God. Now, you can't go and live in sin. And you cannot go and perpetually continue in sin because that new life will die. But if you make a mistake, you have an advocate with the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ. There is a way of mercy and grace, and there's a way of reconciliation to God. The believer should not live in sin. The believer should not, because if you live, listen, if you go and you mess up, you messed up. But if you go back and you go back and you go back, eventually you put yourself back under the dominion of sin. That's what he delivered you from. You're not supposed to live under the dominion of sin. You're not supposed to go back to the life that he brought you out of. But if in a moment of weakness you fail God, perhaps like Peter failed him so terribly on the eve of the crucifixion, let me reassure you that the mercy of God is everlasting. That the same blood that washed away all of your sins when you repented of your sins on that first time will cover you fresh and new today just like it did then. If you humble yourself and repent. We're supposed to live the life of an overcomer. We're supposed to live a life that follows the spirit of God. Sometimes we mess up. And the devil twists that, that unfortunate incident into causing good people to believe that because you made a mistake, you are forever disqualified from living a life of service to God. I'm here to tell you not to take the bait of Satan. I'm here to tell you not to fall in that trap. The mercy of God is still real. And you can still be an overcomer. You have to make the choice. You've got to come back to a place of repentance. You've got to put your heart back under flow of the blood of Calvary. You've got to submit yourself again to him. And then you've got to rise from that place and determine, I will live right. I will walk after the Spirit. Some people have, and musicians, if you'd come, stand with me. Some people have a perpetual struggle, a habitual sin. The problem with habitual sin is not that the Spirit of God can't overcome habitual sin in your life. 
The problem with habitual sin is you don't ever let the Spirit of God overcome you. You think you can control this thing in your flesh. You think that you can come down and repent. You can make up your mind. I'm going to change. And in your mind, you can change. Let me tell you something. You can't control your flesh. Sin. Is, you, you are not the match. You are not the equal to sin without the Spirit of God. You must walk in the Spirit. I had a young man in my youth group when I was a youth leader years and years ago. He was a young man with a whole lot of potential. We had selected him to help us in leading young people. He was well-spoken, very smart young man. Seemed to have a life that was settled in the Word of God. One of those that, as a youth leader, kind of sticks out. This guy's, he's going somewhere. So we, we made him a helper. One night, Mike came to me at my pastor's house after a youth event. He said, Brother McCall, I need to talk to you. He said, I'm struggling with a sin problem. There's this habitual, repeated thing that just keeps happening in my life. And I don't know how to overcome it. I, I've prayed and I repent and I, I, can't get, I can't seem to get the victory over it. And I asked him, I said, Mike, how's your prayer life? Well, you know, I don't pray like I ought to pray. I don't read the Bible like I know I should read the Bible. I just, but, but that's really not what I'm, I know that. I know I need to improve there, but what I'm asking you about is this sin problem. You see, the problem is the two are not separate. The sin problem arises because your flesh has authority because you've yielded it. Because you haven't pursued spiritual things. That's why it bothers pastor whenever you miss church services. It's not because I feel good because there's a whole lot of people here. I made up my mind. Wednesday night, I don't remember how, how few it was, but we preached just like the house was full Wednesday night. And there weren't very many people here. It's, it's not that pastor demands that you've got to be in church. It's that your flesh demands that you need to be in church because you can't overcome it unless you walk in the Spirit. I wish I could tell you that Michael got the victory, but I can't. Michael's involved in witchcraft today. His life is so far off the rails, you wouldn't even imagine that he ever was in church. Why? wasn't because he didn't want to live for God. It wasn't because he didn't have a heart that, that would seek out the youth pastor and say, Brother McCall, I want to serve God. It's because he never got that simple concept. That life that was born in me, that is spirit. And if that's going to continue to live in me, I've got to walk in the spirit. It's got to affect the choices I make. It's got to affect the things I do. It's got to affect the way I live. It has to impact. It's not enough just to be there on Sunday and Wednesday. I've got to, I, I know pastor talks about missing church, but it's not, church isn't all of it. You've got to have a relationship with him outside of the church.
There is an anointing of the Holy Ghost in this house this morning. I, I feel like God's reaching for a whole lot of people. I don't, I don't have a specific individual on my mind. I just feel the unction of God moving in this place. The power of God speaking. Some of you, you know the struggles that you have. You know the things that you battle with in your life. You know the things that perpetually are struggle for your flesh. And I'm not even I'm not I'm not putting pastor on a pedestal and saying pastor's perfect because I'm not. But I know the answer. I know how you overcome this thing. I know how you live in victory, and you live in victory by walking in the spirit. That new life that was born. If you're in this place this morning and you've struggled and you've you've had your battles and even you, you may feel a little condemnation or guilt somewhere in your spirit. My Bible said there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ. That's the key, in Christ. Maybe it's time to find a place in an altar this morning and get back under the blood. Maybe it's time to find a place in the altar this morning and, and put yourself back under the authority of the Spirit of God. Maybe it's time to find a place in an altar this morning and submit yourself again.